This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. There's something about the Midwest that makes wonderful people. Stephen Green is one of those people. Stephen Green is one of those men. He was born and raised in Chicago, a stone's throw away from Wrigley Field. This photographer rubs shoulders with famous baseball players, great jazz and blues musicians, and the queen of daytime TV, Oprah Winfrey. A struggling photographer found the job of a lifetime in 1982 when he went to document the Cubs and never left for nearly 40 years. When I was a kid in the late 60s, there was a run where they were great. You know, 68, 69, 70. And those guys were all my heroes. You know, Ernie Banks, Billy Williams, Ferguson Jenkins, um, Ron Santo, all those guys were on that team. And now they were associated with the, the Cubs organization. So when I came, I got to meet those guys. I was kind of like, well, uh, uh, well uh, you know, wow, you're Ernie Banks, you're Billy Williams, you're Ferguson Jenkins. It was just, you know, crazy. I'm Matt Brown, host of Just a Good Conversation. Take a listen to our archives. My guests have ranged from college professors, Hall of Fame basketball players, sports writers, and New York Yankees public address announcer, Paul Odin. The late Roy Steele was another uh, PA template that I chose to emulate down through the years. He had just this great, smooth voice. You know, I got to know all the PA announcers around the majors when I was traveling, doing the play-by-play of, of whatever team I was with. Uh, and so I got, you know, I got to know him pretty well. And, and uh, you know, in his latter years when he fell ill, I still kept in contact with him uh, through Facebook. And then when he passed, his, uh, I think his daughter wrote to me that uh, he really appreciated that I was a big fan and always said that he was a huge influence on my PA style. The rest of my conversation with Paul can be found on our archives at justagoodconversation.com. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor before diving into my conversation with Stephen Green. I have the wonderful Steve Green on the podcast, who, sir, when I first met you, I said, Paul Newman should play you in an auto pick. Oh, man. That, that, well, that has changed. <laughs> I saw your blue eyes and I was like, oh, my God. Well, there you go. Paul Newman right away. Yeah. I, they're very, that is ironic because I'm very light sensitive, too. So it's, it's sometimes it's very difficult to shoot outdoors because how pale my eyes are and light they are. That it's been uh, I can't shoot with sunglasses on. I know some guys do. Yeah. I have no idea how they do that. And I take my glasses off to shoot. As I've gotten older, I need glasses now. I didn't when I was younger. Sure, of course. Um, I don't know how you'd ever shoot with glasses on. Oh my goodness! Uh, you have an unbelievable career. My God, you you in the Midwest are like just bound together. It's it's fascinating. Yeah, it was it's been it, it was you know it, it was all serendipitous. I mean, you're you know, you're a Illinois kid, right? Born and raised yeah, in the state. Yeah, born and raised in Chicago, and you know, grew up loving music and baseball and all that stuff. But then I went to college out in the North Pacific Northwest. Yeah, ever was it Evergreen. Yeah, at Evergreen College in Olympia. Yeah. And I, now, how do you I, uh, get there from Chicago? You miss all these other schools. Um, well, you know what? I was working. Um, I went to uh, school for two months and, and dropped out because it was 1970 and there was all this turmoil in the world. And I just did not want to be in school. And um, 
So my best friend and I both quit college and we traveled and hitchhiked around the country and did things. And then I ended up back in Chicago and my parents said, you know, well, you can stay with us, but you got to work. You got to get a job. And I got a job at um, Northwestern working um, around their darkroom stuff. And so I had a part-time job there and a a part-time job as a gardener at the Baha'i Temple. Um, which was, I don't know if you know that place, it's beautiful gardens, just incredible gardens at this temple in Oak Park, in uh, Wilmette. And so that's, I can't, I forgot where we're going with this. Well, just how you got to, you know, how you skipped all the schools and got to Evergreen. Oh, oh yeah. So I was, I, yeah. So I quit college. My parents were like, no, you, you know, if you got to, you know. Right. You sounded like a millennial, a millennial on 1970 already living, coming back. With yeah. Mom you know, it was, it was a very turbulent time, you know, it was sure. You know, everything was, you know, Berkeley was blowing up and North, you know, the University of Chicago was blowing up and all these demonstrations. And I just wasn't focused on academia at all. Were you worried but about I, your draft number? Uh, no, that was, I was, cause I was, uh, in 1970, I don't think they'd done that yet. Okay. Um, but I did get a high draft number too, but I knew, I also knew, you know, being a privileged uh, suburban kid with, um, a college education waiting for me that I, I you just had to stay in school. Mm-hmm. So that was certainly motivation. There was never a doubt in my mind. I was going to go back to college and complete my degree. And I was really interested in it and really interested in academics and all that. Just not then. Um, so I was in Northwestern. I found this catalog for this place, and it was a, it just opened. I mean, the first year, and I, and I, and I talked about alternative education and, and blending disciplines and all this stuff. And so I applied and got in. Never had been to the Northwest. Um, got there. And it was you know five hundred students. 500. They started. Yeah, the first year was five hundred. The second year was a thousand. I think when I finished, there was like fifteen hundred students. Wow. So it was a brand new campus, brand new facilities, brand new everything, brand new thinking. It was, so it was, it was very fortuitous for me. Um, and it was one of those places, like probably like UC Santa Cruz, that when they're trying to, you know, alternative education stuff, mm-hmm. that if you wanted to do something, it was great. You know, if you're focused and disciplined and, and want to pursue something, it was good. You also could just screw off and get credit for pottery. <laughs> Or, you know, hiking or bird watching or you know meditation. So it was um, it was a great place if you had some discipline and wanted to do something or interested in something. So that's it was perfect for me. Wow, what you said you worked in the dark room before you went to Evergreen. When did you start to discover photography? Was it much younger? Oh, so I, my father had we had a dark room as a kid, and he was an amateur photographer, and so we always had that around, and we had all sorts of books photography books primarily i don't know if you remember the family of man that mm-hmm. exhibition of the book that was one of the books i picked up early in cartier bresson and my parents were big fans of him um and that whole magnum movement and the post-war robert kappa stuff right. and that is sort of where i had my introduction to pictures to film and photography um and also we had membership to the art institute of chicago which had an, a really strong photography collection and exhibition so I just was doing that, and I was, you know, painting, and I was writing, and I was, you know, doing all sorts of different things. And my parents parents encouraged it. Um, so that's kind of how I got into it, never thinking to do it for money. Right. Now, was music more of a love for you? 
Uh, all was, it was all kind. You know, it was like I was eighteen. You know, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, and there was a music festival place near where I grew up, and there was music and the music in the clubs in the city. And I had older brothers who took me to hear jazz and blues. Um, so that was, and my father was into music. Okay. Uh, and then my two my two older brothers are musicians. So I mean, it was we always surrounded by that and supporting the arts and supporting literature and philosophy and you know and to, and that's in, in film, right? A lot of film. So I mean, that house must have been buzzing with with music all the time. And if your father has a camera and he's taking pictures, and you had your dark room, that's a lot of wealth of knowledge being bandied around in that house. Yeah, it was. There was a lot going on, and um, it never occurred to me that it wasn't a value. Mm-hmm. You know, I think uh, it wasn't uh, like a frivolous thing. It was like something that was intrinsically important to being human and being alive and giving back to the world and being engaged. And I really enjoyed that. I mean, I was really related to it. Right. Never as a content creator, more as an observer. Right. I mean, that's really your style. You really are a documentary photographer by heart. I mean, the way you, your pictures are, are made, you can really see, you can, you can walk into a room and, and be invisible. Yeah. Well, you know, it helped me that, that is really how I am. kind of my personality too, but it's also, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm only five, six and I'm small. So that helps a lot mm-hmm. to like fade away and not be, not be um, noticed. Right. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of quieter. Um, and it's it, yeah, I'm more of an observer that way, and not, as opposed to trying to organize and create things and impose myself on them. Right, right. So you're done with college. You come home. What's your next step? What are you thinking? Where Where is so, Mr. Green going? Well, when I'm done with college, so I ended up my college career. I was I had a degree in art history, and I interned at the Portland Art Museum. And I was they they hired me after that to do some work with their photo collection. And it was all that West Coast, Wynn Bullock and Ansel Adams. And it was like all landscape stuff, view camera things, which I didn't quite relate to. But uh, one of the things I got to do is work with the Curtis Collection and the Paul Strand Collection. It just resonated with me intensely. And they had all these gravura prints and original prints from these guys that they weren't quite sure, you know, how to handle them, what what a mat and photography was just kind of burgeoning then. And um, so I got to be involved with that. And then I built, we had built a dark room in our, in our, our, um, our apartment. And um, I was also had friends with three other photographers who went on to be journalists in newspapers. Um, so we were, you know, we had a community of, you know, working in the arts community, working with photographers, having dark rooms, um, hanging out in the Northwest and, just kind of trying to figure out who you are and what you are and what's going on. And, um, and at some point, you know, I was, I realized I, I had no money <laughs> and I was, I was getting a little older. I was in my mid twenties and thinking, okay, I need to do something here. Um, so I decided to move back to Chicago to try and start a, you know, get involved and learn about the business. But I had this passion for baseball my whole life and, and on Wrigley field in particular, so I wrote to the Chicago Cubs and I said, hey, I got this graduate school thesis I'm thinking of doing, which is documenting Wrigley Field, not the, not the team, but the place is an historical place that had meant so much to me growing up. And it was, you know, ending. It was the last daylight ballpark in the country. Mm-hmm. And they only played day games. Right. Uh, so I wrote to the, to, to the uh, Wrigley's 
And I got an a letter back saying, yeah, that sounds great. We'd love to have you spend the season with us doing that. Um, and I had wanted to do, that was going to be my master's thesis at the Art Institute of Chicago. And they didn't give me a scholarship. And my parents were like, I don't think you want to pay for an MFA. <laughs> it's like, you know, it, it, so I, I, I went I back to the company and said, okay, if I do, I said, yeah, we'd love to have you do it. Uh, so I got a grant from the Illinois Arts Council to, just for materials. And then I got a dark room at one of the u- local universities by helping teach some stuff. And um, just started spending, hanging out at Wrigley, shooting a documentary on the ballpark, all in black and white. And this is what, 1982? This is 1982. So the park is what, in its 60s? It's 60 years old at that time? Yeah, 1912, whenever that is. 1914 yeah. is the okay. Cubs. Whatever, I don't know what the math is. On yeah, that. okay. So, yeah, I mean, that's about right. Yeah, so she's not like, she's not like really, I mean, she's one of the older ballparks, still Fenway. Yankees are still up. Uh, yeah, Fenway is the oldest then Wrigley. Right, and, but even, even know, at that time, team. even in the 80s, there were still a lot of old ballparks. Yeah, there was Comiskey, mm-hmm. which was really awesome because I, I, you know, I grew up with those two ballparks. Yeah. And they were totally different because Comiskey Park was like this magical South Side nighttime game with, with you know, ethnic food and minorities going. Right. And, you know, and there was the American League and uh, all that stuff. And the Cubs were, you know, all daytime, um, you know, real commuter group. A lot of, a lot of, it had, you know, a lot of ladies days and that, that kind of stuff. And Mom and pop. Yeah. Mom and pop. And, you know, a lot of guys that have been there forever and, you know, in a community that lived in the bleachers and the whole culture out there, but they didn't draw. No. I mean, I, you know, they weren't, they were never, when I was a kid in the late sixties, there was a run where they were great, you know, 68, 69, 70. Um, and those guys were all my heroes. You know, Ernie Banks, Billy Williams, Ferguson Jenkins, um, Ron Santo, all those guys were on that team. And now they were associated with the, the Cubs organization. So when I came and I got to meet those guys, I was kind of like, well, uh, uh, well uh, you know, wow, you're Ernie Banks, you're Billy Williams, you're Ferguson Jenkins. It was just, you know, crazy. So, I mean, was it just the fact that your love of baseball you're a Chicago guy that you just picked that park and said, I'm going to document it in a way that I'm going to show its rich history. I mean, was that it purely? That was that simple. Yeah, it was, you know, I was looking for an art project and it was going to be my thesis for my master's thesis. And I, and I, I was really engaged in it and I thought, well, this is, you know, it was all daytime and I was just lived right off the L tracks. I could take the train down to it. And I just, I needed something. I needed a focus to do, you know, to, to work on. And they, and it just was all came together. And then I knew nothing about baseball business side or sports action. I was not an action photographer whatsoever. At at all. Right. Yeah. That's, that's completely foreign to you at the time. Yeah. I had no idea I could shoot things that move. (laughs) Okay. So. Was the project going to be medium format, large format, or were you going to do it? Well, 35? It was all the 35 millimeter. You know, I had a Canon uh, a DSLR and a Leica. Okay. And I just walked around with that. And, you know, the, the great thing is the pre- there's no pressure other than myself to see what I see. Mm-hmm. You know, I wasn't working for somebody. I was working for my own vision. Um, and as we got going, I started sharing the pictures with the 
Cubs, and they had um, they had just been sold. So the Wrigley's just sold the team when I was there to the Tribune Company, right? And they brought in people, uh, professional marketing staff, to, to to actually promote the team and build a vision. And they brought in Dallas Green to build the team. Um, and I started showing my pictures to these uh, the marketing people. And they were like, oh, this is great. You know, we're, we we get that you're not shooting action, but what you're shooting is what we're trying to promote, the beauty of Wrigley and the love of Wrigley. And I said, well, I, can, I need some help financially with um, just materials. And I said, you know, if you can help me with that, I'm happy to share some of the pictures with you. So we had this arrangement going. They'd, pay my, they'd buy my film processing materials and papers and all that stuff. And then they gave, increasingly gave me more and more access um, and then I, you know, I showed them some pictures of action and they really liked them. And I had no idea what I was shooting or how to shoot it. Um, I mean, when you look back at it now, I mean, how, what did it look like? It was, you know, very, um, classic, very, uh, very, um, formal, you know, pictures and in, in a real, I mean, they were really nice baseball cards, the yeah. action stuff, um, and I was, I hadn't learned a whole lot about shutter speeds and f-stops. I mean, I knew about the aperture and the way that looked and what that did, but I wasn't really familiar with it. You had to shoot something at a thousandth of a second or fifteen hundredth of a second to think about stopping it. But in Chicago, they had an unbelievable amount of um, great photographers here that if you approach them and you say, I don't know what I'm doing and are humble about it, they would open up to you. Really? And I mean, so, now you had all the newspapers were there at the time. Yeah, all the newspapers there. But the other part of it was that we're the only daylight ballpark in baseball, right? And not, you know, 100% of our games were in daylight. At that time, so yeah. Everybody, everybody, you know, all the Sports Illustrated guys would come in, Sport Magazine, um, the trading card people, stock people. That's when the stock business existed outside of Getty. Right. Um, so people would come in from all over the place and, you know, National Geographic photographers come in and I, they put me in control of, um, oh, so then I got hired. That's what happened at the end of that first season. I got hired to be their team photographer. Right. Cause the pe- previous gentleman retired, correct? Right. The guy that had been their team photographer retired. How long and had he they, been there? So there were two guys, there was a guy named Barney Sterling, who was sort of the uh, the Cubs Wrigley employee, okay. and he'd been there, man, since the 20s and 30s. Wow. And George Brace, there's a company called uh, George Brace and George Burke, Burke and Brace, and they they shot, they photographed every baseball player in the American League and National League that, that came through Chicago. They did portraits of these guys, and they were just phenomenal. And um, so... Though he wanted to keep doing stuff, and I was like, "Well, yeah, you know, I please do, you know, because he what his deal was, he'd photograph them, he'd own them, he'd sell them to collectors and to and to stuff, and then the team could use them. Mm-hmm. Um, and they they had this archive of these things, you know, these four by five view camera portraits of uh, Lou Gehrig in the dugout, and um, you know, Babe Ruth and um, Joe DiMaggio, and when they came, when they come through Chicago. And then they had Willie Mays and all the Amer- in the National League guys. So originally they shot, you know, we, there wasn't this cross. They didn't mm-hmm. play in different leagues, but they had all the stuff from they shot at Comiskey, and then all the stuff they shot at Wrigley. And then and the Cubs had access to all that stuff. So that was our archive. Um, and having come from a museum background, 
they had me manage the archive and organize and put it together. So that was my job. It was like photograph the games and manage the archive. Now, when they approach you, are you a little taken back? Like, you want me? I'm just a documentary guy. I'm not really a baseball photographer. No, I approached them. Wow. I, I said, I said, you know, here's what I do. I said, here's my problem. I'm, you know, I'm getting older in my life. I, I don't have, I need to make some money. And uh, I would be great to have health care and all that stuff. <laughs> Um, and they said, well, what, what, what is, how can we make this a, a year round job for you to do that? You know, how, you know, we can't afford a full-time position. How would that work for you? So we came up with an agreement where I'd, they pay me to shoot up every home game and the spring training and, you know, so many events a year and then manage their archive. So in the summer it'd be, you know, 81 games there and then three weeks of spring training and, on, on project basis, like once we come in in the off season, it would just be, I'd come in once a week and manage the work on the archive. And, you know, but I was a, like a gym rep for at Ridley. I just wanted to be there. Yeah. You know, it was just a place to go hang out. So I would go down there with a thermos of coffee and just hang out and shoot, you know, shoot the stadium for my own benefit in the neighborhood and walk around. And, um, and then, you know, I had a job as a waiter at night to help pay for things and just slowly built up. And then as you, as I got to know people in that business and they found out that, you know, you know, pretty quickly there's a lot of jerks in this business, but if you're, if you're really humble and, you know, approach people, you know, eventually they started referring me to work and they knew I wasn't going to try and cherry pick their jobs. So to talk photography with Walter Yost or Ron Madra or John Beaver, or, you know, any, any of those guys, Manny Milan, Jerry Walker, these guys that all were great. They'd say, yeah, no, this is how you do it. And this is how we bill. And this is what we charge for. And then here's, you know, and then I met Mickey Palmer. I don't know if you know him. Mm-hmm. Yep. On sports. You know, he said, okay, you know, this is how we, we can sell this is before Getty. This is this, we have a stock agency you can do stuff with, you know, submit your outtakes or your, you know, whatever. So I just kind of learned how to make some money and how to keep occupied. Wow. Um, Walter, was, Walter did have a big influence on, on you, didn't he? Oh yeah. You know, just to see how we saw sport, you know, cause you, there are a lot of great guys that can do ball and bat and, you know, hand sure. you know, that stuff, slam dunks, everything. And Walter just had a whole different view of how he saw sport. Right. And he was just, you know, and he was a good guy, elegant guy, articulate, sharing, not afraid of anything, influenced by art and music. Yeah, you know? see, that's where I see you guys having a great relationship is it's, you're not just photographers. You've got a, a deeper understanding of what makes you two guys tick. Yeah, it was about shooting from your heart. Yeah. And uh, and then I had the great fortune of, you know, when the the Bears were in the 80s were really good. And I, you know, I, and, and with back then, the teams all sort of accommodated each other. So I, I had a season credentials, the Bears and the Bulls and the White Sox. And it was just like you go and shoot. And then Mickey was like, hey, here's how you can make some money. And Walter was like, here's how you can make some money. And Madra was like, yeah, you knew it to this. And here, you know, and, you know, it, it, it just mentoring me one, one, so I didn't screw it up for anybody. Sure. And to, um, you know, encourage me. 
that first couple of years, you're you're the guy. You're wearing a, a Cubs hat now. You're the man. Was there ever a day you pinched yourself and said, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm on the field, not in the stands? Oh, almost every day. <laughs> you know, I never – there's that uh, – um, there's this part where you walk into Wrigley into the bowl and you just walk up to the stands and you go – it's just beautiful. And it just, I was just so happy and thrilled and couldn't believe it was me. And I, it was there and I never took it for granted. And I rarely, you know, got up in the morning and went, Oh God, I gotta go shoot baseball really today. You know, uh, on opening, opening day was always the thrill, but the day afterwards when it was, you know, 38 and drizzly, not so much. Um, but I had a really different job than the guys on the newspaper. You know, I wasn't telling the story of the game. Mm -hmm. I was telling the story of the team. Um, and you probably remember like with the angels, you know, you know, it's not like the double playing the third inning of the game that you got to get. It's like, you've got to make sure you've got the pictures to tell the story of the team and the season and the stadium and the year and all that. Yeah. Um, it's a much more funner job than what we have than what AP or, or someone working for the sun or the times had to do. Oh, that would be miserable. Yeah, it was for me, you know, and then I met VJ, right. And he, had, yeah. he, 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 he'd gotten involved with upper deck and, and, you know, VJ was, um, besides being a you know, great person and an awesome photographer was also a savvy business guy. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, so we would share those things and his, his whole relationship with upper deck and you know, recruiting guys to do it. And, you know, his thing is we need, be able to make really good, sharp, well-composed, well-exposed images. And that's the first thing. And then you need to have something unique. So it was really great to see that that whole brand build and how that changed the whole card industry. Yeah. You know, their influence and everything. And it opened up that for all of us. Because I, I wasn't an upper deck photographer. I wore tops and donruss. Okay. <laughs> Everybody's so, got their their card at the time. Well, yeah, and everybody, you know, in in part of well, so also part of what I had was you're kind of the gatekeeper to access, mm -hmm. you know, and you kind of I realized pretty early who was serious photographers and who were committed and making money and, and professional and and not being jerks, um, and what and really respected that and made that environment worked hard to keep make that environment at Wrigley professional. Right. And um, a comedy photographer came in, like if you had to come in and you had to shoot something of whoever it was, you know, right. whatever player on it, on the other team, most likely, I'd help make sure that got set up for you and that you had the space and the time to do it and knew who to go to and all that. And that, that, that you know, respecting my job as a professional and the people that came in and demanding that back from them. Yeah, you were always a wonderful host. Yeah, well, thank you. But yeah. we also requ required that you be a respectful photographer. Sure. Can't be a rowdy yeah. guest. <laughs> no, not well, you know, a lot of guys would come in with, you know, cut off t shirts and flip flops and cut God. off shorts and or gym shorts on and you know, eating hot dogs in the boo and the drinking and, and I would go, wait, no, you know. You know, I, I get the dress code, you do it you do what you do, but you know, you don't drink in here and don't eat and you know, let's Let's do the game. Sure. We can do all this stuff afterwards, but let's respect each other's space and what we're doing and, and promote that. Um, so now, that was really important to me to, to have us respected as professionals. Right, right. Because it would look poorly on you. It would look poorly on me and on our, on our, 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 um, our vocation. Mm -hmm. 
I took it seriously. You sure. know, I thought this is I'm 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 here. For, this is what I'm doing, and I wanted to be professional. Now, at this time, you're still dipping your toes into music, the music scene, correct? You're still... Yeah, so the great the great thing about Wrigley and about the Cubs, you know, it was all daytime. <laughs> you were the man during the day. Yeah, well, it meant that the evenings were free. Mm-hmm. And at that point in my life, I could, you know, go out at 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night and stay out till midnight or 1 and still get up and be at the ballpark for a 120 game. You know, you actually have to be there at 10. And I live near the ballpark. But, you know, I was just in love with, you know, jazz and blues. And I sort of started going to, to clubs and I meet people. And that's, uh, is really different than rock and roll because there's no money in that, that world. So there wasn't this like uh, fear and antipathy towards photographers who felt they were stealing their work from them. You know, it was rock and roll is a little more, it had gotten to be more buttoned down in corporate. You know, jazz and blues musicians were just happy to have you there, and I was, you know, happy, I was so happy to hear that and be there. And then I started taking pictures, and um, for no other reason than to do them, you know, because there's there's almost no money in that world. In yeah, the, in and, the, and the, the access and the and the scene. I mean, there are those some of those clubs are beautiful to shoot in. Yeah, they are, and you know, again, being respectful and quiet, and not you know, not. Saying, "Hey, I'm here. You know, I'm this guy doing this," and the and the Cubs thing also opened up all those doors for you. You know, there was this it, there, there's a credibility associated with being with a team mm-hmm. that I hadn't appreciated when I first started. That there was this assumption that I knew what I was doing, which I didn't, um, and that also opened the, you know the doors to all the Sports Illustrated stuff and ESPN and sport magazine and you know there was this like this you know this is this they assume you're somebody important and, and doing well because you have this position not because you know what you're doing right so I, I was i i benefited from the glow of the team and i never forgot that i mean i've never ever forgot that that was much bigger than i am right um i think it's fascinating that how quickly you came immersed in the photo scene where you were kind of had your toe in it. And then by 82, three, four, you're fully in, like you didn't yeah. frighten away from it at all. No, well, it was kind of like, this is what I want to do. And I let's find out if I can do it. And, you know, and how to, um, I was single. That helps. And it was okay not to have a lot of money. <laughs> it was really more important to be doing what I'm doing. Um, but I didn't know a lot about ownership and copyright and that stuff. That was all the stuff that I learned from these guys. Later, sure. Yeah, and, and well, quickly. Yeah. You know, because they, they were very concerned, or not concerned, involved with the fact that you, you want to be a business person too. Mm-hmm. And they, uh, they didn't want somebody coming along and undercutting them inadvertently. Right. And getting stuff away. You know, one of the worst things that you do is you have young guys come in and say, I'll do this for free or I'll give it to you. And you go, no, you know, right. that's really, you'll know, you'll, it's antithetical to what we need to do and respect each other as, um, which is some of the mentoring you have to do with younger photographers. Right. Right. And I was, I had to be mentored. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you, you had a job where people would give their arm for. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure people walked up to you every day and said, boy, I do your job for free. They did. Yep. 
And you just go, you have no idea what I go through, sir. (laughs) Yeah, tell me, let's go to a rain delay Tuesday night in April. Yeah. Or that double header when your wife's going, "Um, when are you going to be home? When are we going to be home? Yeah. Yeah. You know, you got to go, baseball has no clock. Nope. Nope. No, I don't know. (laughs) Within two, three years, you've got your team on the verge, one game away from the World Series in 84. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it was unreal. And I was way over my head. I, that's what I was going to ask. Were you terrified? I mean, like, oh my God, I'm, I'm barely have battle scars and I'm going to be in the world series possibly. Well, you know, in my career, I kind of learned to breathe deep, get rid of the panic and, and do it and, and, you know, give up to faith myself that I know that I'm, I'm going to get something because you can paralyze yourself with that. You know, um, you can literally stop yourself from being who you are and you, when your vision is and working by worrying too much about getting it. So you kind of have to turn that off. So, and I didn't know enough to realize the scope of all that. Um, and we, uh, and we started out, we won two games at Wrigley, you know, we crushed them. And then went to San Diego, and we all thought, oh, God, we don't want this done so quickly because we're in San Diego, and it would be great to hang out here. And, you know, it's October in San Diego and we're by the pool, and then we, we got to go to Detroit next. Um, uh, and I, uh, you know, but I was like, no, let's, let's yeah, I want to do this. I want to win it. But it was, you know, it was, I, it was, I had no, I didn't have a context to know how much I didn't know. Okay. And I had great people around me that just were really good. And, you know, help me. Yeah. Was that was that a devastating crush early in your career, not to win that game against San Diego? It was, uh, oh, yeah. yeah. Well, especially going up two, we went into, you know, it was a five-game series, and we, we were up two-nothing. It was like, and we had, like, this great pitching staff. Like, how do you not beat the Padres? Yeah. And um, we didn't. <laughs> Yeah, you know, you know, game one and two, and then we were winning in game five, and then there's this Buckner thing, and there's Leon Durham, not in Buckner thing, Leon Durham thing where the ball scoots away from him, and it just all fell apart. Oh. I know. And it's so, like, people will listen to this, and the kids will hear it, and they don't understand. You're shooting film. You don't know what you have until a day later. Like, yes. you know, so all of that kind of sits on you even more. You can't just chimp in the back and go like, oh, okay, these are some great photos. So that, I mean, did it take you a little bit? Cause you're still young in your career for this. Did it take you a little bit to kind of just get over that loss, especially as a fan and a, an employee? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was, it was, it was hard, but you know, I think the front office is like 80 people then. <laughs> so we're all like, you know, a family with it. And we, you know, the, the, the flight, the, when we lost game five in San Diego, the the dugout was just, you know, it was just like the, the air gone out of the world, the whole world. And I'm trying to think, okay, what what is, what is you know, what's the story I got to tell? And what's okay to shoot and what not okay to shoot and all that stuff. So, and I'm bummed. Um, but I, you know, I did some pictures and stuff and then kind of left the clubhouse alone because I, you know, I figured I should, the last thing you want to do is, be in there then, which is a mistake because I should have been in there then. But, you know, two hours back into the flight, you know, Jim Fry got up and made some speech about, you know, we had a great run. 
you know, things happen. Let's not underestimate what we did and how far we've come and who, who you are. And, you know, there was Harry Carey and uh, this, you know, it was just, I followed their lead. And then, you know, and the players, they were, they got, I don't know if they ever got over it, but they got over it on that flight. Right. You know, and they, they all went, it was over. They were all bummed. Yeah, I'm sure. But it's one of those things that they get over it quickly, but it lingers forever. It does linger forever. Yeah. You said something very interesting. Did you reach out to any other team photographers? Because our world is much different than SI coming in. Their access is very limited, even though it could be still better than maybe a newspaper guy. Did you reach out to a team photographer and say, hey, what do you do in this instance? Do you stay in the locker room? Do you leave the locker room? Oh, well, you know, this is really interesting. When I got hired by the Cubs, they had me go out and meet the Dodgers because they thought that was what they they kind of modeling things after. And they had me meet Andy. And Andy, because Andy would be before Suhu. Mm-hmm. So they flew me out for a, a road trip and they had me hang out in L.A. And I called up Andy and I said, hey, you know, this is who I am. Um, I don't know what I'm doing. Can I, you know, they'd like me to meet. And so Andy, you know, said, yeah, well, you know, you know, and Andy, I mean, he's like, um, if you're not a jerk, he's really nice to you. And um, he'd met a lot of people and he'd been in the business a little bit. Um, I was whole new to the sports, but he, and I, he said, oh, this, you know, here's what we do. This is how we do it. This is what, you know, I'll take you around Dodger Stadium and show you that. And this is what I do and what I do with my pictures. And, and then, um, then he left, you know, and then I, I thought, okay, so, then I started talking more to the Sports Illustrated guys. And then the, I, the, I was friends with the Bulls photographer, Bill Smith. And, you know, we talked business with him. And then, you know, Vest, one of my best friends in the world is right. Ron Vest. And he, I can't remember the year he became the White Sox team photographer. But he was in the business. And and, and, and Vest was is very, um, very organized and very uh, thoughtful and um, gets the business part of it. So he, you know, I dialogue with him a lot to, to figure out what are we doing? How do we do this? You know, what, who has the rights to what, who owns what, what can you do with it? Um, so we just kind of morphed our way through. Plus 1980, early 80s, sports was not, the sports business thing was not that big. It was just, yeah. it was still, you know, there wasn't all that money in it and all this deep, con- I don't think anybody, I think for, I can't think it was Fernando the first million dollar contract. I can't remember who it was. But it was still pretty early. It was, yeah, it was very early. There were you a know, lot of guys who were just making, you know, eighty, hundred thousand dollars. They weren't making real money. No, and they were all approachable. Very much. There wasn't so. this whole agent thing, and there wasn't this whole branding thing, and all of that stuff. You know, they were, and I was their age. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so it was. You could go out afterwards with, the, you know. Manny Trio and have for dinner or something or you know Rick Sutcliffe and, yeah oh um, God Rick that'll get you yeah. in trouble yeah well yeah, yeah and I can't party I'm a I'm a I'm a major lightweight so I, <laughs> I stay I, away I, from I Rick <laughs> yeah well no I learned to not not go out to the next bar <laughs> exactly yeah you know you know Steve has one bar in him that's it yeah I got one bar one beer and then I'm kind of done <laughs> it's um. You know, we have this thing where, you know, you're you're friends with them, but you're an employee. There's pictures you want to take. You walk this fine line of how much you approach and take a, a win or a loss and get out of a space and in their space. 
Yeah, it's a, exactly. It's an interesting dance. And I mean, I had some players in the four years I did it uh, bite at me, but then later apologize because they kind of understood I had a role to do. Did you ever get? Oh, all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, you. Um, so one thing I did was I was welcome in the clubhouse in the beginning. And I just I made sure I had a presence there, even if I didn't take pictures. Okay. You know, I'd just be around and I'd go, hey, you guys need anything? You know, can I get anything for you? Is there stuff you want? And inevitably, none of them wanted action pictures. They wanted family pictures and celebrity pictures and all that stuff. And I made sure to make, get them to them. And I went to the Cubs organization. I said, look, you know, we need to make prints to give these guys if you want us to keep taking these pictures to keep them Happy. involved in it. Mm-hmm. And they said, yeah, no, they, you know, spend that money. Go ahead. That's 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 smart. Um, so I made, I found that that was the greatest entree in there. And, 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 and the Cubs, you know, we were huge We had this, this really big daytime reach. So a lot of people would come to Wrigley, a lot of people to promote things and to, and to be seen and be on WGN on the, on the, uh, the nationwide station. So I got to meet a lot of celebrities and they would all want to meet the players. And I would take the pictures of them and make sure the players got them. And then our marketing team would make sure they go to the celebrities because they wanted to develop those relationships. I, I wanted to make sure I developed a relationship with the player and they knew this came from me and that, thank you. Regardless of your, you know, number 25 in the roster or 24 back then, um, or whoever you are, because mm-hmm. you never know who's going to be great. Right, you year. don't know. Who's going to be a manager 10 years later. That too. So I was really good about doing that and not, uh, not, not being when I was in the clubhouse, I didn't engage in conversations. You know, I didn't like try and be part of the team. I recognized really clearly that I was part of the organization, not part of the team. That is, I, I've seen too many photographers think they're part. You know, they're one of the guys, and you're not. Right. You know, these guys are really worked hard, very skilled. They're they're a unique group. It's them. They've earned it. It's not me. I'm just part of the organization, not part of the team. If that makes sense. Yeah, no, it, there is a difference. And when you're in it, you know, I mean, there was a time, uh, I was with the guys and they were going to go, they were in San Francisco, a very weird road trip. We played Oakland and the giants back to back. So we stayed in San Francisco for a week, which is very rare. And they wanted to go to Vegas to a, to a, to, I think it was the Pacquiao fight or whatever. It's one of the big fights at the time. And they were like, oh, well, we'll take you. And I was like, no, I'm not going to have you put me on a private jet, buy me a ticket, and then bring me back. Because that would just felt weird. Like, you know, I have to keep my my professionalism. Yeah. And we, we can't get to a, over that buddy line because there's the way the business is. Yeah, and, no, that's an important distinction. Yeah. yeah um, and they thought so I was crazy. You, well, do they want you to come with your cameras? You want, they want you to come as Matt? Uh I not you're never sure because I always had a camera, I always had at least like a Leica or something with me, and that was a Suhu thing. He told me he goes always have it, but you don't have to use it. Yeah, that's it, absolutely. Yeah, that's that. I have that same thinking. Yeah, even today I walk around and I have, and, and now the iPhone is crazy, but right. Yeah, but it was really you know it, it was really clear to me that we weren't buddies. They liked me. Mm-hmm. But my role was to be the photographer, and and there was pictures you took that you never shared, right? You know, there was uh, back in those days, in particular, 
before social media and all that stuff, people weren't afraid of it. There was, you know, anything that happened in the clubhouse that was stayed there, unless it was a celebration. Right. But any of the stuff that you just don't talk about. Yeah. You know, I t- they say take this picture or something, or some guy be doing whatever. You something know. dumb. <laughs> but, yeah. Yeah. You just, you just, uh, you don't, you know, you know where those pictures are, and they don't get shared, and they're yeah. not in the archive, and they're, you know, they're in a never, they're in a separate folder that my wife doesn't even look at. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly, and you, you know, and they're, uh, they'll never be shared. I'll never publish them. I'll never, be, you know, yeah, not the hot foot stuff, but other things, you know, sure, other stuff, guys, being um, guys, silly stuff, and it happens. We're in this world. They're trapped for nine months in a crazy world. And for us to actually be a part of it and see it with a camera, it's stunning. Yeah, it is stunning, and it's a privilege. And it's, uh, yeah, you don't, want, you don't want to screw it up. Yeah. So of all the crazy things, here you are now, you're five, six, seven years into your baseball career. All of a sudden, you meet this woman in Chicago named Oprah. You, oh, yeah. You, you well, help, I did not meet her. Well, you help somebody out, though, right? Yeah, so it happened. There was a really well-known photographer, Paul Natkin, mm-hmm. kind of like Z. Yep. You know, he, he's a, a, a rock and roll photographer, and he's a legend in Chicago. And he was Oprah's photographer, and he got hired to go on tour with the Rolling Stones. Uh, and he called me and said, "Hey, I think you're used to celebrities and all that stuff, and um, would you mind filling in for me for um, while I'm on tour?" And I said, well, yeah, great, because it dovetailed fine, because really the the TV season is late September to um, April, May. Okay. And at that point, we were, you know, October was pretty free in Cubdom. And um, you said and it, Oprah, not me. <laughs> and Oprah, Oprah also, she the other thing about Oprah, it was live, you know, so you had to be there at 8 a.m., but the show was over by 10 a.m. Right. So I would shoot the film. And then drop her off the lab, and I could go to the game still. I could be to because there was it was like half an hour from Wrigley. Sure. And the, and the, well, I used the same lab for hers. I used for the team. So it was it was it worked well. And and I you know again I didn't know anything about shooting TV, and I didn't know anything about that world, but I knew about being around celebrities and high profile people. And at that point in her career, she wasn't. You know, she was uh, just started her her TV show. Uh, had, had gone from local to national, right? Yeah, and and she owned it. You know, she owns the show, not a network or anything. So she hired all her own people. And Paul, you know, Paul Nakin said, "Yeah, this I have this guy." And it was like, "Yeah, okay, great. If you say so." And so, and again, you learn how to like not be there and be there. Mm-hmm. And the hardest thing about that thing was not being, I wasn't intimidated by celebrity because I'd already been around a lot of that. I knew the hardest part was to learn how to stay out of the camera's angles and how to be unobtrusive around on a TV set and um, how to expose for that for TV on film and negative, I mean slides. So it was so, yeah, so they wanted to shoot transparencies. as well as black and white negative, but it was color transparency so they could send the transparency out to the dupe and send it out to different um, media outlets. So that was my whole purpose to shoot promotional pictures to send out to promote the show. 
Um, and then Paul, after a while, he came back from the tour and said, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing much more of this than I am that. And I, would you want to take over? And I said, yeah, yeah, it'd be great. So he, he left and I took over his position and, it, but it was a freelance position. Right. You know, it was like, you know, 50, 60 shows a year. Um, and you get into it and it's really, you know, it was fun. I mean, it was a great group of people you know, hard working. You what know, did you, you learn? Um, learn one, how to expose for TV, you know, okay. literally how to expose that, but also how to stay out of the cameras, you know, how to stay out of cameras, how to look at a script and anticipate what's coming. You okay. know, cause she, a lot of what she did was, um, uh, not audible, but, um, she set a form. You'd have like, I think it was eight segments and each, you know, the segments would be, here's the, the cliff notes for this segment. But that that she, she the brilliance of Oprah is that she could you know uh, just take off on her own and do something else and adapt to it and adjust to it and she you know it wasn't she didn't work off a script she worked off her own genius uh, and she was really good at it um, and just being there but not being there and then um, you know you get that inevitable call we want to see the work you've done so far kind of like see what she, and then fortunately I got the okay on it that she liked it. That's good. Uh, um, but about eight years into it, you know, I got the call that, you know, we're looking to go another direction because, you know, you get stale. Sure. And I, I was bringing nothing new to it and it was getting routine. Um, and she also went to from being live to being um, taped. Okay. So you went from being a live 60 minute show to a tape could take two or three hours. And I couldn't go, you know, it's, hey, it's 1045, the game's at 120. Uh, you know, one of these, you can't do them both. Right. There's only one boss, and you got to make that decision. Right. And, and my heart was the baseball. It wasn't really an entertainment. Right. Did um, you did you learn something from that when they kind of made that call to you and said, hey, we're going to go in a different direction, and you referenced being stale? Did you take that to heart and make sure that that wouldn't happen at a Cubs? Yeah. Yeah, first it's a big ego blow. You know, I went home. It, it's a financial blow, mm-hmm. and it's an ego blow. Okay, what do you mean? Uh, but the lesson in my mind after I got over that part of it was, oh, don't get stale. You better apply this to your corporate clients. You better apply it to baseball because uh, it's too easy to get lackadaisical and not reinvent yourself and keep keep excited. So it's really important to keep excited about the work you do and engaged and not just like, Oh, it's a fifth inning. I don't, maybe I'll shoot this guy. Maybe I won't, you know, maybe I won't walk up to the bleachers because the clouds are out. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, you don't want to get too sedate or too secure. Yeah. Or visions, you know, you want to like, since we're all, we're all compassionate about what we do for work. You, it's a killer. If you don't keep that fire alive. Right. And it's a very scary thing. I mean, probably you didn't even realize it was happening it was probably little, Oprah, no yeah little increments you know, little yeah. here little here little here and then that slap to the face makes you think that next season probably at the cubs you were like all right here i am i'm fresh i'm gonna make sure i i am more than i was you know the last five years i mean that must have really been a kick in the ass yeah it was it was all that and uh the good thing about the cubs work helpfully with me when i started was as an employee which is the opposite of where I ended up. And it was unique back then to be an employee of a team. Oh. Most of the photographers were contracted. 
Yeah. But I wanted to have that that kind of anchor of being, you know, employed by the team and having health benefits. And I took less money because of that, but it was an anchor. And we they were really good about realizing there was an off season and non game days. That's good. And they were like, you know, yeah, no, we understand you have to make money away from here. Yeah, and just refresh yourself. My God. Yeah, refresh yourself. And they liked the fact that I was shooting music and I'd shoot other things and share with them and you know, tell them about shooting Mayor Daly downtown or some pep rally for something. And, um, but, I, but I was never a news photographer. You know, I never competed with anybody for a wire service job or a newspaper job. I, always, I went to the corporate side. How, how was your early setup in those early 80s? What was your gear setup? What was your amount of film that you kind of tried to shoot in a game? So this was interesting because I'm not a, I don't shoot a lot. Um, but what I didn't realize is that I got, I, I got a relationship with Canon with, uh, Canon had this thing called, uh, Canon professional services. Mm-hmm. And there was a, um, so I'd lean on their tech reps to come and say, Hey, what do I need to do here to do this? And you'd meet somebody in that organization would be like a cub fan. And then they'd want to help you out and they'd want to say, Hey, try this lens, try this lens, you know, and they had lenses I couldn't afford to buy but I could borrow them and I could try them out and figure out what my vision was and how the equipment interfaced with what I wanted to see and understand how that, those two work together um, and how motor drives worked and, you know, long lenses with, you know, shooting at F2.8 meant as opposed to F4 and what, what, you know, what the playoff was on the look versus the shutters, all that stuff, you know, that was still new to me, you know, sports action, um, and you know, people that knew there's people that just know an enormous lot, enormous amount about cameras that I don't. But if you go to them, go, hey, help! And they go, they were they'd love to because they're they're passionate about it. Right. I mean, I see your personality. I don't think you're a heavy shooter. You're not a guy who's going through four or five bricks a game. Oh no, no. As no. a documentary kind of background, the sense of your soul, like I would think you're very methodical on thinking it through visualizing yeah. it, taking the picture, waiting again, taking another picture. I mean, 20 frames a second to you doesn't mean a damn thing. No, it's too much. The uh, Unless you, you know, that play at the plate. Okay. Or in a playoff game, I shot way too much film. <laughs> but, but I also realized I had to look at it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think, you know, the other part of it was like, and thinking about what you wanted to say in the picture and at, in, 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 in sport, in particular, you have to anticipate where something may happen. Um, you know, if you see beautiful light coming across third base, you can anticipate that you know, maybe it's a wide-angle shot and you can get the guys uh, running and he's going to be leaning home and this is where the shadows are. And that may never happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but that being given, you know, if who, that guy hits a home run in the third inning, it's okay that I miss that. And one of the great things that John Beaver ever said to me was, it never happened. Mm-hmm. you got to get that mentality in your mind, it never happened. Not that I missed it. Or, oh, my God, you could screw up your whole game the rest of the day. You know, you know, you, you, you like poison your thinking. Um, that, in fact, I listen to music during the game. Yes, you're a, you're a music guy, headphones and all. Yeah, so I, I, and it was also locking out the conversation with other photographers. Oh. God, you know, because yes. if you're in a photo booth or photo bay, you know, there's a lot of chatter. And I, I can't do that. 
I mean, I get too distracted. And music helps calm me and focus me. And whether it's listening to Mendelssohn on a cloudy day or Buddy Guy or Mick Jagger or Leonard Cohen, whoever, you know, you kind of like feel what your mood is and get that music and get inspired by it and then get in that zone. And I dedicated those, uh, well, back then it was three hours to, to that game. And I was all in on it. And, you know, and I had the freedom, to, you know, like I said earlier, if you saw the clouds over the bleachers to go up to the upper deck and shoot that and not worry about the double play you just missed or with some guy, you know, breaking his ankle at second right. base slid in. Um, and also having a really supportive community of photographers in Chicago who are like, look, I got you covered. Look, if you miss that, you really need it. You know, if you, you know, if, if there's money being made, pay me for it. Right. But if you just need it for an historical record to put in your archive, you know, we'll help, you know, we got you covered. Sure. And by the way, can I get two tickets? <laughs> <laughs> of course. It's always two tickets. Yeah. What was your thought when the when there was chatter about the lights coming? Oh, you know, I grew up such a purist and a Wrigley Field guy. I thought this was going to be terrible. And I was, I, you know, I wasn't, I, I mean, I had to go along with the organization. for. <laughs> you weren't out there protesting with the other fans? No, no. I was documenting, but I was like sympathetic to them. I thought, oh, you know, I, I don't want this change. You know, first of all, I don't want to work nights. And two, <laughs> you know, I, got, I got this beautiful ballpark that's, you know, so special because it's daylight. But they only started with 18 games. Yeah, it was a very small number, right? It was very small. And they realized that they wanted them in the summer. Um and what I, what I, mostly in the summer. So what I came to realize is that seven o'clock in June and July and August of Wrigley is just gorgeous. You know, that late afternoon Midwest light is just, and the, again, the, we had no um, buildings around the ballpark yet or anything. So Nothing. There was, yeah. it was all these beautiful long cast shadows and saturated colors that you don't get at a 120 game, Mm-mm. you know, that, um, so it turned out to be this really beautiful thing for me. And um, it helped me keep in the rhythm of morning shooting music, too, because I'd be working nights. And the hardest part was when you go from a 7 o'clock game to a 1 o'clock game. Okay, yeah. You know, that, that, that turnaround. Um, but I was young, you know, it was it just dealt with it and did it. It was fine. And it turned out to be one of the greater things to happen was having nights at Wrigley. It's just beautiful. Oh, yeah. I was always jealous of you Midwest guys posting these cloud photos of your stadium, you and Kansas city and everywhere else is like, Oh God, you lucky bastards. It's so beautiful. Well, we're five blocks from the lake. Yeah. And they had that lake. So you could be, you could be, I live uh, 10 miles from the stadium. It could be 90 here and 75 at Wrigley. Oh, and you never, and the temperature can go, it can really drop quickly by the lakefront. Um, but it was really atmospheric. Every day looked different. And I was just in love with that. You know, as much as I was with the game, I loved this, the place. Yeah, I mean, you work at a place or worked at a place where the stadium was alive, literally, with the, with the vines in the outfield and the IV. Yeah. It became alive and then went dormant during that wonderful time of baseball that, that had, to, had to inspire you when you're shooting to see that change. Well, it did, and I had, you know, I, I had a love affair with the vines. I'd shoot that every year, just the progression from mm-hmm. air, from snow to brown to buds coming to, you know, full, full, full ivy to the fall where it just sort of started falling off, and, you know, you'd get the colors and then the leaves on the ground, and 
and then we'll go back to that by November. And I had, you know, the, the, when I started, we had keys to the ballpark. So you could just go, you could just, I could go anytime I wanted to. And they had trusted me that I could just show up. So you could go, there was like a full moon over the ballpark, and it was a Tuesday night in July, and the team was out of town. You could, I could get in. And there was a trust factor. And, every, you know, they knew me and they trusted me. You know, you didn't bring a bunch of rowdy guys to run the bases. Sure. You know, you, you, know, you, you knew that would eliminate that pretty quickly. You were there to make a pitcher. Yeah, I, was, I respected the place. And I, I, I had a crush on Ridley. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and they appreciated that. They appreciated the, the pictures. And I wasn't a big stickler about, hey, you know, this is a Tuesday afternoon, evening, and I'm not on the payroll today, but, you know, I think we should have these in the archive. Right. You know, I, the, I got the playoffs that the, the, uh, you made with everybody. I, during the research, I found it was so romantic that a rain delay changed your life and you found a love. Oh, yeah. It was, it was, yeah, which is ironic because my wife is totally not a sports fan. Um, so that came about because her, I was involved with a theater that was down the street. And they were looking for investors, and my wife's grandmother and uncle were looking to to just help invest in the theater company. And the guy that was doing that was a good friend of mine. He said, hey, do you mind getting us tickets? And um, by the way, his her grandmother, the, the grandmother was a big Cub fan. Can you take a picture around the on-deck circle? I said, yeah, as long as I don't have to deal with the family. And I don't have to do anything, you know, just I'll take that picture. I'll give it to you. You, you interface with them. And so, you know, it was like one of those August nights or late July, August nights, really humid and stuff, but beautiful. And we came down and her grandmother came down. I, I took her picture and Harry Carey came by and said, hey, young lady, how are you? And they sort of got into a thing and she was just thrilled. And I took their picture and then I was standing with my friend Michael, who had brought these guys down. And, you know, as you do, you look in the stands and you're kind of scoping out girls and all that. I said, look at her. She's, you know, he said, yeah, that's her granddaughter. I said, oh, really? He said, yeah. And then, you know, the game started. I figured, okay, another pretty girl in the stands. So then we had a range of land. I went to meet Michael and he was with her. And I, I, we just kind of, you know, that when you meet somebody, you kind of like connect. And I connected more with her than she did with me. And then uh, <laughs> she had just come back from Thailand. She was like on that, you know, that walkabout for six months where she, she went to China and Thailand. She, yeah, she was laid back and easy and kind of like uh, I got her phone number and I, I called her up and she said, yeah, I'm going to be out of town for a couple of weeks when we get back. And that's how I met her. And then we've been married, you know, almost 30 years now with two kids. And But the best part, I, have, I married somebody that – Totally under, she's a dancer um, and um, an artist, but she totally understands that passion for something, mm-hmm. doesn't understand the passion for baseball, <laughs> and never had any interest in wanting to talk about it, no meet a player, bring an autograph home. It was one of the better blessings of my entire life to marry, be married to somebody totally out of the business in the industry. Oh, wow. And not a fan. That is so great. Oh, that was yeah, it was great. And she a, got the you know she got that I I had this thing with Michael Jordan and the Bulls like you know I I, I did that whole thing. Was, couldn't care less. She was more interested in Coco Taylor than she would have been in <laughs> Michael Jordan or you know 
Javier Baez. Right. Who is this Javier Baez guy? Whatever. Guy? Let me show you who this guy is. <laughs> He's unbelievable, honey. Yeah, unbelievable. Look at these photos. Yeah. Quick, let me get photo mechanic up. Oh, my God. When did you start to go into shooting full-time color? Because you probably had to shoot a lot of black and white early on. Oh, well, I shot black and white for myself. Okay. And that, so this was the, this, I had to shoot color pretty quickly. And I, and, and, and I had, had to learn to shoot chrome. Um, so I, fortunately enough, got really, I was good friends with the Kodak rep. And they gave me, uh, and I, I knew Kodachrome because I was a Kodachrome, Kodachrome Tri-X guy. Those are my two, you know, the holy grail for me. And I had learned, so I knew about exposing uh, Kodachrome, but I did not understand about exposing it at 2,000 of the second. Mm. And it, so 64. So I, I had to learn how and when to, to use that as opposed to Fujichrome and learning how to push it. Okay. So I had to learn all that stuff. That's where the SI guys came in. They go, yeah, you know, if you, you know, and I started shooting some things for SI just because they wanted some pictures of people that came through and they didn't want to send somebody. That you could send, that you could push, push process slide film. I, you know, I learned about that and in the, in the Time Life Lab. So, you know, and then I saw that, you know, like John McDonough was pushing stuff one and two third stops. And I said, well, what do you mean one and two third stops? Said, so, yeah, you know, I read the light, and here it is, and I see this, and I know that I, w- I want the shadows to come out, and then go, I'm going, how does that mind work, John? And, you know, and then he, you know, you, 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 I don't know if you know him, but oh, he's, very, yes. he's very on top of that, and that's a gold mine if you can if you can hear. Invest is the same way. Mm-hmm. So I learned all that stuff, and then I was I was really good friends with the lab people, and they took me down, they showed me how you the process stuff, and if you needed to push something, um. And then I went to the Time Life Lab, and I met the techs there. They, the, the guy came and said, look, I know you're a really good photographer, but there's a difference if Walter Yeo says push it two and a third stops or hold it a quarter stop. If you say push it two and a third stops, we're pushing it two stops. <laughs> so we're, we're not doing this look by inspection and doing all this stuff. So, you know, there's a lot of you guys. And <laughs> <laughs> there's like five guys we'll do that for. Yeah. You're and you're them. not one. You're not one of them. So learn to expose your film correctly. <laughs> or make sure Walter sends in your film. One of the other. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, God. I can't tell you how many times that damn Sharpie. I used to assist McDonough. I used to have to write that, you know, one and a quarter plus and put it in that bag. And then this is two thirds plus. Oh, God. On and on. Yeah, and uh, you know he knew what he was looking for. And, oh you know, yeah, you know if you see his stuff, you can see where it makes a difference. God love him. Yeah. How? When did you start to go to digital? When did you make that jump? Were you a late bloomer or were you jumping in quick? Uh, no, I was very reluctant because technology and me and computers are not friends. Um, I had to. I, I, th- I think it was. We shot that. I shot the World Series for a while for Major League Baseball. Mm-hmm. I think it was ninety nine or two thousand. Canon came out with this Kodak digital camera, and they they gave it to me to test out during during that, which was like you know really during the World Series. Um, so and that was when we were shooting for Major League Baseball before they'd come up with MLB photos. Mm-hmm. Um, they um, so I tried that the first time, and it was like a four mega file, and there was a delay on it. But we got it back, and I thought, 
this is kind of cool. And as it came, as things started approaching, you know, the uh, Canon, I was very involved with Canon. I, I did uh, speaking for him and all that. And it was a, kind of a, not an ambassador, but a, uh, not a, a explorer of light, but a, kind of an ambassador. Um, so they gave me all the digital cameras to try and learn on. And they'd sent a tech rep with them to teach me how to do it. And I, and I think when they, when it got to the delay wasn't bad. It really switched it over. And then the Cubs realized that, okay, we're going to invest $30,000 in camera gear and save $50,000 in the lab. Um, we're going to start doing that. And that it just made more sense as they got, they expanded the publications department. And they, there was, you know, it was just like every other part of the industry. Right. It exp- uh, just started exploding. It started exploding. And I, and I realized, and I'm not, I'm not the sharpest guy, but I realized pretty quickly that I didn't have a choice. And then I had, you know, Vess, who was like, speaks this language. Um, and a couple of the AP guys explained to me what, how digital worked and how you saw it. And that, you know, it wasn't the same as film. That ISO 400 on your digital camera is different than ISO 400 on your film camera. And that being able to see something was, you know, important. And, you know, calibrate that to what you... Anyway, it, it changed. The, the, for me, it was great. Because it could, you know, you could shoot more and not worry about it. Um, the downside is you had to edit. Right. You, to, you know, I realized quickly I had to look at everything you shot. Um, the the arc on that whole thing is the expectation of, of people the turnaround time on it, and the, you know the, the immediacy of it, and, and that is kind of like at this point in my career with the guy with the Matt Matt who took over for me mm-hmm. Matt. And the Cubs, he guessed that he can shoot something, transmit and have it to our social media team within seconds. And he he, he kind of, his mind works that way and sees that way and thinks that way. And that was a struggle for me to like understand tethering and shooting and transmitting. And I was kind of like, it was like at the end of my career, I was like, you better learn this, you better get out. Right. You know, and so I'm out. Um <laughs> The um, but that whole transition, fortunately, there's people that know that stuff that shared mm-hmm. and didn't make me feel stupid. Um, so I had to learn it, right? Now I embrace it. Yeah, you have no choice, it's it's part of our life. Anything we shoot, it's a digital camera. I mean, even Leica has digitals now, and every Hasselblad and everything, the quality is unbelievable. It is unbelievable, it's better in film now, I think. Yeah. What was your early process and what was your last couple of years process when you went to a game? Were you still thinking of like, I need to get this, this, and this? Were you still shooting slow? Like, what was your mindset? Um, well, the, interestingly enough, the Cub became really good at the end of my career. So in 2014, when Theo came on mm-hmm. and, the, and the Ricketts came on and they bought the team from the Tribune Company and they, you know, they made this deal that, you know, we're going to be good. We're going to be very good. We're going to be competitive. We're also going to change the stadium and we're going to become, you know, become a 21st century ballpark and ball and team that I, uh, it was really exciting for me to, to get in, you know, embrace that with them. So they were all in it. And and I, you know, I I met Theo and Theo got what I was doing and how I saw things and thought that was important and said, you do everything you want to do. I want you to be with the team. I want you to be in the clubhouse. I want you to do this. You, you've got my blessing, you know, and, and, and that was awesome for me. That started with Dusty. 
okay. you know, with Dusty and I, hit, you know, um, hit off music together. Okay. So we, we we sort of bonded over that, and he gave me his access to the, to the team and the and the dugout in the clubhouse. Had it been had, taken away from you by like Lou no, or something? No, it just wasn't there. You know, okay. it was like you know, what's this guy doing here? What are you taking these pictures for? Why are you around? Or, you know, depending on the team and the vibe of the team and who's there and what players. Some players are can be jerks, right? Um, but Dusty was, you know, and, and we and we were winning when he came on. That helps. When when Lou Pinella came on, he was like, "Do what you do. I don't care who you are. I don't know. You know, no relationship with him. Do do what you do." He didn't even know my name. They never learned it. He was like, "Oh yeah, hey, photo." You know, and uh, it was you know, it was like, "I don't care what you do. Just leave me alone." Sure. Yeah, that's Lou. So you know, you learn to 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 read the room and to make friends with the clubhouse guys and all that. But when um. They came on with Theo and they brought Madden on. Joe Madden and I hit off great. And he had this love of music and we shared that. And he was like, I get what you're doing. Don't disturb, don't distract. Do whatever you want to do, just don't distract from what we're doing. And I, I had learned early to, you know, if you shoot something, make sure the player gets it right away so they understand what you're doing. And to to, to so I'm, I was really conscious about making sure that all those guys that came into the team and it were either very young studs or veterans from other teams, making sure John Lester knew what I was doing because that could be the kiss of death. Right. You know, he goes, get this guy out of here. You know, um, so I was very good. About, you know, I was very honorable to them, very uh, respectful, shared. Um, and I also had Theo and Madden's blessing, which helped enormously. Right. So then that went through, you know, we were really good there from 2015 through 2020. You know, it's funny too, when you started, you're the same age as the players. And yeah. at the end of your career, you and Joe were cl- closer in age. Yeah. We were, yeah. Yeah. We, I was more his contemporary. Yeah. You know, we shared his love of music and he, in food. I was really involved with the restaurant business in Chicago. So, you know, he, he kind of, we hit it off great and he trusted me. And we worked on some art projects together, and it was you know it was a contemporary. But I, and he also knew that I understood how to behave. Yeah, you said a big word there. He trusted you. That's yeah, huge. Yeah, he trusted me not to interfere. He trusted my mission that I had. Theo did too, um, and the marketing department, you know, of appreciated all the work I did too. The, the, I, that was the other thing I learned early in my career is to read the marketing department and be proactive. So I would seek out them. I go, okay, look, it's June. We've got three months of beautiful light ballpark action players, backgrounds. What is it you need to can use next year? And I made sure to record that with them and go, you know, I'm sending you these emails. I'm being persistent. I'm being annoying on purpose because I don't want to come up in November and go, why don't we have this? Right. You know, and, um, yeah, if we need a picture of everybody, every sign with a player in front of it during the game, let me hire somebody to do that so I can do this other stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, your marketing budget is this. I can hire somebody for two hundred fifty dollars to spend a game just shooting the billboards rolling boom, and changing. Boom, boom, yeah. Boom. And you can get it with Javi in front of it, Rizzo in front of it, whoever you want. You know, let's let's spend our money there. Because in in their mind, every day is a beautiful day with sunlight and no rain and beautiful skies. And <laughs> that's like eight games a year, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You really were the right man for the job. 
when you took that job and through that career? I mean, you really were the right person. Uh, yeah, I think other people could have been too. I think I just they uh, they trusted. Me. I mean, it was it fit. Yeah, you know, opened up all those other doors. And I think the other part, I really got the corporate side of it. You know, it, it was really easy to understand the game and the action and the beauty of the ballpark, but to understand what grew as sports progressed, that it was really a market-driven sport, mm-hmm. and that the salaries were commensurate with Gatorade's sponsorship and with, uh, you know, Budweiser's sponsorship. So to make sure, make sure that you uh, really paid attention to the sponsors and made them feel valuable, you know, remember their names, you know, send them a picture of them throwing out the first pitch or their client. Make sure that stuff happened. Right. Because that, you know, you can get screwed and, and queered by the team if you're the wrong guy and you're annoying to the players. You can get locked out of that. But the people, those guys come and go. Right. The marketing department is who's paying your salary. Right. And you got to remember, I, I, I never forgot that. Plus, they op- you know, they opened up a lot of doors for me. That's why I ended up working with Nike and Gatorade. And right. I mean, you started getting into corporate work, big corporate right. work. Yeah, because the guys that were down there would be the marketing guys from Gatorade or New Balance or whoever, Wilson. And they, that's who you needed to be connected to in order to get, you know, that's the, the phone call you could never cold call. Mm-hmm. The corporation to get, to have that guy's contact and send him a picture of him and his kid. And go, hey, also, who do I talk to at your company about possibly doing some work for you? And they'll say, hey, Lim, I get you right. I got his number right here. Thanks a lot for yeah. the photos. And they'll, ref- and then that person will return your call. It doesn't always work. But it's it's a foot in you didn't have anywhere else. Yeah, it's a foot in you didn't have anywhere else. Yeah, it's big. It's, uh, I mean, and you did a lot of corporate stuff. Was that yeah. was was getting into that world intimidating now because you're dealing with really big dollars, high, I mean, as much as baseball's high expectations, you have a whole nine months to shoot baseball. You miss a double play on a Wednesday, you're going to get it next Tuesday. Right, exactly. You can't miss or mess up a corporate job for two hours and say, oh, can we ship everybody back to North Carolina and do it again? Yeah, no, you can't. Um, You know, part of me is I'm very – not anal, but I'm very organized about that stuff and very on top of it. And very, you know, the rest of my life can be scattered all over the place. But when it comes to a client, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm very proactive about, okay, you know, Hey, yeah. You know, we got Serena coming down to do a thing, talk to the staff and, you know, uh, I wasn't hired to shoot the Gatorade ad, but I would be the second photographer on that. Or I'd be the one she came to when she would do a clinic. Mm-hmm. I, I figured out really quickly where I was comfortable, what my skill levels were and what I wanted to do. I never wanted to be the guy that had to manage a $50,000 corporate shoot, uh, advertising shoot and hire assistants and permits and all that stuff. I wanted to be the guy that was documenting that for them okay. and find, finding out who I was in that world or to go to a tennis tournament and know that you, that we got plenty of action shots of Serena. When we don't have, we need her drinking the Gatorade with the label showing. We need the signs in the background. We need, you know, all that stuff. The meat and potatoes. Learned, yeah, I, I learned that from baseball, from working for a, a for working for the team. You know, I wanted that logo in the background. So anyway, and not to be intimidated by celebrity, because mm-hmm. I, I spent my whole life around celebrity, and you realize one of the greatest things you can do to somebody that's well known and a celebrity is to just address them as people. 
because the rest of the world sees them as this other thing. Right. So they read intimidation and awkwardness. If you can talk to, you know, Tom Hanks and be comfortable and not, not ha- I don't have to have a conversation and go, Hey, would you mind just turning this way and doing this? I'm looking for this. This is, this is what I want to get out of the picture. They, you know, they get it. Right. They understood it. Mm-hmm. And they're professionals. Least, yeah. I'm here to take out as least amount of your time as possible. And, and that is those, that key sentence makes them go, okay, this guy knows it. He gets it. Yeah. He wants me in and out of here and he wants to do it as quickly as possible, as best as he can. And you learn that from being with a team, you know, yep. a player going to, you know, when you tell you say, I need two minutes of your set time. That's really all you want to take them. You know, yep. it may take you two hours to get set up and be ready for it and days of planning, but you got to be able to execute. And, and, and you actually take a minute 45 and give them 15 seconds back. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they yeah. think you're yeah, king. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's probably the same with you. Yeah. You know, when you go and you're with the president of the college and yeah. You know, he's got to get on to the next meeting, you know. Fly on a wall. This Or this donor really needs this picture. Yeah. Having having the gravity to be able to say to them, I need 30 seconds because this guy's important. Mm-hmm. Listen to you. Right. When did you start to feel like you were a baseball photographer? Oh, man. You know, I don't know. I think I just kind of morphed into it. You know, I don't think it was, I think probably when I had a first double truck in SI or something. Okay. Um, or, the you know, the Cubs, we created our own magazine. Right. And we had these covers on it. And we did, we, and it was really popular and really great. And I got a lot of feedback. Um, and people really responded the way I saw it. Um, so then I get that. It was just, there wasn't a moment, you know. I, I, I remember my first Sports Illustrated cover, I think, was Michael Jordan. Um, which was ironic, right? That Bill didn't have it, <laughs> or yeah, or there wasn't a baseball picture. Yeah, I mean, yeah. How, what were you doing at the game? Uh, so I had, you know, when Michael was, so uh, I had a, a deal of time, ink to cover all of Michael's career in case something happened. So they would have access to. So they pay me, you know, a small day rate and all my expenses. I own the film. And I just shot, and, and plus I wanted to be there, but I was the time time life guy there, not the SI guy. Right. Uh, just so they had access to it. It was kind of like, you know, the president, you know, so always somebody photographing the president in mm-hmm. case something happens. Michael was of that stature at home. Right. And then, and, and you know, the NBA had some, Nate or Andy had covered, you know, somebody covered him every single game. Sure. Um, but that was my deal with him. I said, you know, if something happens, you pay space rate above and beyond this. And so anyway, so then they came by and then when he came, when Michael came back, he retired and then he came right. back and he changed his number. I just got a call from Maureen and go, Hey, you know, we got this picture out of the archive. We're going to use it for the cover. And I went, what? <laughs> and it, it, it wasn't like the most, it wasn't the greatest action shot. It just happened to be him, him with a really muscular arm in black and white. Um, and I shot a lot of it in black and white. And I made I had made a deal with Carmen to photograph him in black and white during the during two seasons as part of uh, NBA properties. Really? Yeah. So and I shot and I shot it and then I was shooting all this stuff and then I got a call from Carmen and goes, "Hey, 
you know what? You're sitting next to Nate Butler and Andy. You don't need to shoot action. We want you to shoot something else. That's not why we. That's not our deal. Don't get. Don't go somewhere else. Do something different. Yeah. No. So you're not one. You're not that good as these guys. And two, your eye is something else. We want to see what you see the other ways. You know. So that. So my thought thing was him tying his shoes, or you know him. You know his, his fingernails, or how graceful he was. That's what they wanted to see. And I, you know, that was a great lesson. Yeah, that's that's interesting too, because you don't think about it like you baseball's so small, you only have so much space, and you're like, oh, I'll sit right here. But then you look who you're sitting next to, and you're like, okay, that's pretty dumb. I should be yeah. sitting there. I should need to sit somewhere else. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I got and, it. And for me, in, in particular with baseball, I could go anywhere. Right. You have so I'd be in the first, the first base dugout when I could be behind home plate. I could be in the stands and get a different angle. Mm-hmm. I could follow the light from the stadium. I, I, I think that's why you're king. I look at some of those photos of inside the scoreboard or from high right or behind home, and I just go, oh, the light and the, the yeah. eye and the creativity. It's, it's, well, and the access. Yeah, and the access, of course, but – you know this. You can have some. You can give some people access, and they can still screw it up. Yes, yes. You also have to learn that access, right? And get, you have to earn that access. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and part of that in that stadium is is realizing the fans come first. Mm-hmm. You know that don't don't be the guy that we somebody screwed up for all the baseball card photographers. Wrigley by you know they used to was shooting in the stands. And some season ticket holder came up and wanted to sit, get in his, he was in his seat. And the guy said, just a minute, let me finish this at bat. And oh. the, uh, the ushers came over and escorted him out. And in, in the next, next, the next home stand was like no photographers in the stands. I, mean, I was okay, but right. nobody else was in the stands. Oh boy. So you had to have, get dispensation for like Beaver or Madra or somebody to go and shoot, <laughs> you know, and I was like, really? Do you know who these guys are? This is John F. and Beaver. <laughs> yeah, man. He, he, the guy that would never offend any, you know, he'd probably walk around a fly just to avoid it. Yeah. Walk me through that magical 2016 season. I, I, I don't cheer too often in baseball, and I was cheering like a fool for you. Yeah. It was crazy, you know? It was, um, one, you know, it was sort of the... You know, when you're in spring training and everybody in the world's there to photograph you. Sure. And there were the cover shoots and all this. You know, there was a sense that we we're supposed to be really, really good. Um, and as the season went along, we, you know, it, it built and built and built. And I, and I went to, you know, to Theo and I said, look, I really want to be all in totally on this. He goes, yeah, where else would you be? He said, you know, I mean, I really want to, like, be inside of it. And he was like, yeah. <laughs> Why do you think you're here? And I said, okay, I just want to be sure that I got your blessing. And, and so I started, I was, that's kind of how I took it on to shoot. I said, we got enough action stuff. And the budget opened up for the Cubs too. And I could hire other people to shoot for me, to shoot game action so I could take the other angles. And then we, um, we you know, we started rolling and rolling and rolling. And then we get to, to Cleveland. You know, we, in Chicago, we lost, right? We, we lost the first couple of games. So everybody was like that doomsday Cubs, you know, so here's the Cubs again. And then we, you know, we came back and, and in game five, we were going to be eliminated. We were down. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then they come back and win. Uh, and we go to Cleveland. And the weather is just horrible. Yeah, it's you know, late. Right? It's no, that game, game six is November 1. 
Yeah, yeah, and it, and they moved it up the start time because of the rain. So they had to move the start time from eight o'clock to six o'clock. I think it was. Jesus. And so I'm I'm sitting in there. I'm I'm th- I'm watching the. I'm taking my clip from the player, and the players are all very composed. I'm watching, you know, Lester and Arietta and John Lackey and these guys who you know they're just like not getting excited, not getting, you know, overall. And I'm trying. Okay, I'm, I need to keep this pace. And I had the credential, you know, that I'm with the team, so you could go in and out of the locker room. Uh, so I avoided, I avoided all everybody else. You know, I, I didn't talk to those. I didn't hang out with the press guys, or the team photographers. And I had the, uh, you know, the great. Uh, it was awesome that I could sat next to Brad Manning for one game and Vess for one game in Cleveland. So they knew to leave me alone, and they knew I listened to music, and they knew not to, you know, they they got it. Yeah, and, nudge you. Hey, hey, hey. Yeah, yeah. Vess has got his by now. Brad's his, uh, ring. Yep. Yeah, Vess is talking me down. Yeah. Vess is like, you know, okay, come here. Just calm down. Take a breath. Stay within yourself. You know. Be, you know. Be you. Yeah, to me. Yeah. Because he knows me. You know, he knows like, you know, I, I'm not. I'm pretty quiet, but I'm. I he can read me. Sure. And he he'd been there. And um, so he was doing that. And so it was, you know, and the guys that sat next to me were great. They, they, they got it. They understood who I was and how I, and I could go back and forth into the dugout and all that kind of stuff. And I was, you know, I had access. They didn't. Um, so then there was that rain delay. Yeah. You know, so we're sitting there and we're that game. I, I don't remember that game. They, they, they took a lead. And they were winning, and you know everybody's like, "Okay, where are you going to be? What are you going to do?" And I'm sure Chicago's going nuts. Um, and I'm still listening to music. And then I get so you know they all go into the clubhouse, and I go into the dugout to get out of the rain. And I'm just sitting there, and they're you know they're um, all of a sudden, Javi comes bounding up the stairs. He's going, "Let's go," you know, and. And the, and the rest of the team comes out, and they're all just like locked in. Well, didn't didn't you attempt to go in and saw people coming out of the locker room, and that kind I of started? Yeah, I exactly. So I, when I first got into the dugout, I started going in, and the front office staff came was walking out. That must they, have made you nervous. They, uh, no, no, it was more like, "What's going on?" No, they weren't looking at me, and I said. What's going on? I said, it's the, there's a players-only meeting. You right, can't go right. in. Because that, that's where I was headed. I was I go, I got to be in here with these guys for the rain delay. You know, and hear what's going on and shoot that. And they said, no, you, you don't, you're not wearing a uniform. You're not a player. You can't be in there. And it wasn't like, get out of here. Right, was, right. You know, and they, and they realized that all I needed to be told was once. Um, so then I went and sat on the bench. And then 10 minutes later, you know, Hayward comes out and Javi comes out and Rizzo comes out and they're they're all like locked in and focused and you know uh, and Chapman's in the dugout and he's like in tears because he's given up the lead you know and he's all um, you know just like he didn't even see me you know he's how these guys get in the it's zone just devastated it was devastating and um, so that I had to go back to my spot and then all that happened. And and then you know for me it was like you're getting down to that last out. And you go okay, what's the picture? And the picture really was from the other side. 
it was, you know, it, my pictures of Chris Bryant just, you know, doing this and picking up the ball, fielding it, and, you know, you can see the relief on his face. But the other, the picture from the other side when Rizzo wins and he jumps up in the air and the whole, and he runs out and it's in, so I don't have that picture, but I was, it was very difficult for me in that moment because it was like, who are you in this moment? I'm a fan. I'm literally a hometown fan. And I'm also a team photographer. And, you know, as what we do is that there's a separation when you're doing that. You don't, you're not part of the moment. You're separated from it. And you got to be that way. And it was like, it was really very, very difficult for me for a moment. But then I got over it. Yeah, because, I mean, you know, I mean, you've, you have so much. You have a lifetime of a fan invested lifetime as a photographer invested your artist side what you want to document you know it's chaos right people yeah. forget that you're on the field so you're you're amongst dejected players leaving celebration going on you got a million things going on you have references in your head which are the worst things like i want to get this i remember that and this is how vj yeah. shot it and walter would do it this way exactly <laughs> and you're just That's exactly to, right yeah and you're just trying to go take a second embrace yeah. the moment yeah and it's and, and you know it's not really there to do yeah and so i don't know where i shot i didn't have a clue where i shot till i got back <laughs> just firing like a madman yeah you know and, and which is not really my style but then you know you've got a big car in there and the motor drive and you know the, the hardest part of that for me was that when that ended and then we did the trophy presentation and the champagne thing I thought we were done, but we weren't. That's when every player wanted to go out in the field and, you know, every family wanted to go out in the field. And that's where you still, you know, it's like, wait a minute, guys, you know, this is, um, I'm kind of, I don't, can I be done? And, you know, no, because you know, that's the, the, the picture that's going to mean most to them. Mm -hmm. So that was another hour and a half and it was started raining. And then, you know, the, also the flight back was only 45 minutes. So by the time we took off, we were landing. So there wasn't like that time to shoot the celebration on the plane and the party in the plane. It was, you know, it was like all one continuous moment. Was it bittersweet that it was one in Chicago and not at home? I mean, it was on Cleveland. Yeah. Yeah. One, no, it one um, at Cleveland there and progressive field yeah, or whatever the hell they call it. Then. It was, um, I didn't care. Okay. I was so happy, happy to win. <laughs> And we, you know, I, I knew we had uh, this. Uh, we had these guys back in Chicago covering it, so I knew we were going to be good. And this, this one picture. That is, do you know Ross Detman? Do you know his? Yes, work? yes. He, he, he made that. He was working for the team then, uh, for that World Series, and he made this one picture that is just incredible outside the stadium, with the flags going up, and we, we you know, Cubs win, and Cubs win the World Series. Mm -hmm. And I thought, okay, you know, I really. I, one, I wish I'd made that frame, but two, that would have been so awesome to be there. Um, I can't imagine trying to get out of Wrigley oh. if we weren't there and been there and what the stadium would have been like if it had been filled with people and they'd won. Um, coming back was just remarkable, you know, getting off that plane and showing up at 6 a.m. and have the stadium filled with, surrounded by people and fans and being in that, you know, I haven't been asleep for 24 hours. And <laughs> I, I'm the guy that hasn't had a drink. Yeah, right. You're the sober guy who's tired. The sober guy. <laughs> Did you, I mean, I, I've noticed this as I've gotten older. Maybe you, in that moment, you kind of might have felt that. When you're 
30 and they're 30, you're just taking pictures. But when you saw Chapman devastated, he gives up that run. You don't know what's going to happen. You guys are going into the 10th. You have children now. Was it that kind of like emotional father kind of thing where you see it and your heart kind of breaks for him? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it, you know, I did. And I didn't know him. Right. Because we'd just gotten him. Right. We only had him for like two months. So I didn't have a relationship with him. But I did for David, um, for all the players, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, I knew that some of these guys, had this was their chance. This was it. You know, for the young guys, for Javi and Chris Bryan and, and, and Rizzo, they were just still young in their careers. Sure. Some of these guys, this was it. You know, and they, they that's why that's why they came to the Cubs too. They came they came uh, like John Lackey said, I didn't come for a haircut. You know, I, I came they, they came with a purpose to do this. Right. And that was it. And, and they, they, there was that mindset. I don't know how what the, where that came from with your question. Did I answer your question? Well, no, but it's just as like, you know, like we as we get older, you look at some of those images, especially of the heartbreaking moments we gotta photograph and like that parent moment comes in where it's kinda like it means more to you as you get older. To see oh those yeah, kind yeah, of things. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and I did have I did have context with it, and I knew I knew that Aralus Chapman knew he was a rental player. As a professional, it was a defeat, mm-hmm. and I'm sure it was devastating to him. Um, but he didn't. Uh, I didn't have that. I didn't have that paternal thing with him as I did. I would have had with the, the players I knew their whole career. Right. Yeah. I mean, if yeah. if. Ross doesn't get the home run or whatever, something like that. Things don't happen. Yeah. Then all of a sudden it's devastating. Yeah. And I was happy for Rizzo. They got that hit, you know, to, yeah. to you know, I just knew, I knew what I meant. And, but I, you know, is when you're in it, you can't be in it. Yeah. The relationships mean everything. The relationships in the trust they had in me to not get one, not to get in their way. Mm-hmm. And in, in the other part of having spent their entire careers with them, I was invisible to them. They didn't see me. Right. You know, when you're Matt Brown and you're there every day and the president of the college doesn't even know, doesn't even sense you around or you're, you know, the people don't know. It's like being certain in a surgery, you know, the doctors, they don't even recognize you anymore. You're, you're right. like not there and you better not be there. Mm-hmm. What's the best photo you ever took? Oh, I have no, you know, do you get asked that question? <laughs> I do. I do. Yeah, I, I, have, I just and I don't have. I don't know. It's like the one that's coming, or yeah. hopefully the one that's coming. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I kind of t- like. I'll say. I I just lectured the other day on Monday, and somebody asked me that, and I just said, "Well, I you know, one I prep prepped for, and it kind of happened. Um, you know, maybe the one like my son will have hanging up in his room that he wants or cares about, or someone asks for a, an autograph of. Yeah, I I have several of those. Hopefully. I mean, I'm working on a whole new project now, and hopefully that will be where it comes from. Tell me about it. What's it about? What are you working on? Um, so I, when I knew I was going to retire, I reached out to Toyota to do this thing on uh, get back to the road and see America. And it was a pitch to them about um, driving all the back roads of America and documenting what's right about the country. No talk about religion, no politics. Mm-hmm. And to drive just every, no highways, nothing like that. And so they, I showed them what I'd been working on and they loved it. Um, 
And then there was this issue with the catalytic converters. I don't right. know if you know about this. You know, the, you may notice there's no car commercials on TV now. Right. There are not enough cars to fulfill the the. Um, so they came back. So we love this idea, but um, we don't want to. We don't need to promote anything. and don't want to promote anything right now. But my wife said to me, "Look, you're retiring. I think you should do this, and just do it." So. That's what I've been doing for the last two years is just driving around back roads. I started with documenting the Mississippi River Road. Wow. And just driving small town to small town uh, and documenting life along the Mississippi River. You know, from the tugboats to the captains to the people who live along the river to the small towns. Uh, a 180. I never tell anybody about my history and my background. You don't want to get distracted by that conversation. Right. It's just reaching out to them and going, hey. Who are you? What, you know, what do you think? Is it a portrait of somebody or maybe a... a, a well, you know, it's just pictures of cornfields and the wind waving over it and broken barns or a guy fishing or kids jumping in the river or, you know, barges going up and down the Mississippi River. Um, you know, color, black and white. Okay. It's, it's, um, there's no goal. Okay. And there's no client. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, no, it is, it's really interesting. It's in it's the intimidating part is that you have to get back to your authentic eye. So when you look at your work, you have to judge it through your own critique, which is the, the, I'm the harshest critic of all on my own stuff. And you're not shooting for a client or a vision or a story. So it's, it's been great. You know, it's been. Has it felt rejuvenating a little bit? Oh yeah. 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 So I'm doing, I'm going down to the Smoky Mountains next I'm going to drive from Chicago down there and then back over to Memphis and up the river. Then I'm going to do an Amtrak trip. Oh, wow. So I'm going to take the, um, the train from San Francisco back to Chicago. Oh, and photograph that. Interesting. And that. So that's what I'm doing. You know, my wife's still working. The kids are out of the house. <laughs> She's seen enough of me over yeah. the last three years. <laughs> okay. So when did you know two years ago that it was time? Well, well, one is money. Okay. You know, I, I sat down with our, our financial guy and said, look, can we do this? He said, yeah, as long as you don't spend, you know, you know, yeah, you can, you, you know, come tell me how much you need to, to, to live on and what your budget is. And my wife is still working. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, figuring that out and, and doing that. And it's taken me seven months just to kind of, get into that 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 formula okay you know that you know fortunately for me when uh i knew i was quitting and we hired matt dirksen right rockies he came in and was commuting so he'd shoot the homestands and leave and go back to denver to, with his family and then when he moved here finally i think it was like in may they were gonna have a baby so i said look i'll 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 fill in for you till you're ready. So I had this nice little transition time to leave Wrigley and leave baseball and leave the Cubs. And, and when he finally arrived in June and was set, then he's just taken it over. So tomorrow is the first time in 40 years I want to have been at opening day. Wow. I know. It's the very first game time it will never not be an opening day somewhere. That is amazing. I mean, I, he – I saw that he was leaving the Rockies. Then I had him on the podcast. And then randomly he posts something like, hey, you'll never believe this. I'm going to the Cubs. And I was like, wait, they trade team photographers? What the hell happened? Like, <laughs> No, it was interesting. He, so he got to the point where, you know, when you're now, when you're an employee of the team, 
Well, you probably had this conversation with yeah, you know, yeah. nine to five, you know, they, they, you don't have a life. Uh, and you don't. Employee. So he, he had, he has other interests. He's, you know, shoots wildlife stuff. Right. And wanted and has some other projects he wanted to work on and realized that he's losing his, his passion and didn't want to do that 24, seven, 360. So when he found out my job was going to be open, he called me and go, Hey, Tell me about your job, and do you think I'd be good for? It? I said, "Well, yeah, I think, well, I think you'd be great for it." You know, it'd be one. You know, you know this whole world, and you know what the team, the team side. And I said, "You know, the only thing is, you, you know, you got, you're not going to make us, you're not going to have benefits and all that, and you be, need to be able to hustle and do things on your own." And he said, "That's exactly what I want." So I went to our guys and I said, "Well, here's this guy. I, you know, I can't recommend him high enough. He's." knows everything. We don't have to teach him anything. I just got to like introduce him. Right. He knows the protocols, knows how to behave. Absolutely. And he's, you know, 20 years younger than me and knows technology and can bring us into the, the into the next generation. He's totally embraced it. And he's, you know, he, you look at his pictures, they're awesome. They're different. Yes. You know, they're, they're, he's, he's just really good in a different way. Yeah. So they're very fortunate to have gotten him and um, it's worked out well. Yeah, it's good. I think it's it's a it's a good person to take over, you know, the seat. If there's one person to choose from, he's he's fantastic. And he gets the integrity of the business and what needs to go forward and what you need. All that, all this stuff. I'm just not interested in right. anymore. Are you mesmerized by what the team photographer position has become from when you started in '82 to today? Yeah, I don't know if you're mesmerized. I think more uh, sad. Well, oh yeah, that's a, yeah. You know, I think the, um, not sad. I mean, it's great if you're young enough to, as you know, baseball doesn't pay enough. Um, it, it, it's great for these guys because it acknowledges that that's an important place to have and it's, there's a value in it. I think they just eat them up, though. I think the, the, the amount of uh, content you have to produce continually and quickly is it's just nuts. Oh, it's it's bonkers. It's bonkers, and I and I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that and be contemplative about my pictures, which is who I am. I'm much slower and a little more thoughtful. Um, but these, I mean, you, the guys that are out there on these teams are just remarkable. Right. I mean, they're, they're, Billy at the at the Red Sox and 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 Brace at the Twins. Those guys, these young guys, are making unbelievable stuff. Yeah, and Ari with the Yankees and, and oh, Suhu and you know, Ari's unbelievable. The, I mean, they're doing. I mean, I'm, I'm whoever I'm leaving out. I apologize. Oh, there's too, there's a ton. Yeah, we all know who they are. There's and they're, um, but the generation gap from you know from Billy to Suhu, right? Sure. That's, that's probably thirty some years. Holy Christ, Zeke could be grandfathered to half of the people out there. Yeah, so look at how Z, how Z shoots. Now Z and I tend to. You know, Z is like a personality, you know, he, he's, he's yes. there and he creates that stuff, but his images are so, you know, um, not about game action at all. I mean, I mean, I just, I love his eye and how he is with that stuff and talk about a guy that he's, he's one of the more generous guys in the world. He'll talk to you. He, he's like me. He, he, you know, if you ask him about technique, he goes, I don't know. I just do this. I mean, you know, I, I just get it done. He's, yeah. he's more about personality and, thinking and being involved and compassion and all that stuff, yeah. which um, I think is the problem in the industry. A lot of times it gets to te- involved in technique. Mm-hmm. 
and in gear and all that stuff. It's, that's just a, a thing to get you there. If you took his 400 away, he wouldn't care. No, he'd, he'd probably prefer it. Yes. You just give well, him I a think, 16 to 35 and he'd be a happy as a bear and just yeah, make his so. pictures and he would be very calm and go about doing and telling his stories and he would be perfectly happy. Yeah, calm's not quite the right word. <laughs> well, he's getting a little older. <laughs> yeah, he is. But he and Brad have this wonderful dialogue going. In this oh, show. those two are perfect together. So I, uh, I, so I've switched almost to all prime lenses. Okay, you know, I'm, I'm into that now, and just why? Well, because it makes you be the zoom. Okay, you, you tend to think more in terms of. Th- I mean, I love the 35 and 85, and I kind of like live in that world and i and when you live that way you start start to see that way and frame that way mm-hmm. so I, that's kind of how i see things now as opposed to a zoom you know i i go up to things or i move back from things and, right um and i love shooting at one four and one eight and it's uh it's it's nice it's a new way to discover how to see are you still on the canon system yeah, I'm with. I have a Leica, and uh, I like the Leica Q. Okay. And yeah, but I have the R5 system. Okay. Mirrorless system, and then Look I have at this you, Mister Mirrorless. Uh-huh. Well, you know, it was like it's time to change. Like you know, I went. So I, I went. You know, when I went, I had to. I had a can of sponsorship, so I had to return a lot of my gear. Okay. And I went to the the uh, Canon person here. I'm really tight with. Who's I've known her her whole life. And I, she said, "Look, you know, really." This mirrorless stuff is really perfect for you because one is it's lighter, you don't need motor drives, and it's really much sharper. And I go, well, you know, really, you know, I, you know, another new thing to learn. <laughs> but they, uh, she sat down with me and you know took me through all the systems and taught it to me, and now I just love it. I love the fact that it's my first problem with it was I, I didn't realize I'm shooting twenty frames a second because there's no sound. <laughs> and I came back and I was like, oh, I had a 64 gig card filled up. I said, well, how, what, how did that happen? And so then I had to learn to, you know, turn it down. To <laughs> I bet you were quite surprised. <laughs> I was quite surprised because you don't hear it, you know? It's, no, it's, yeah. It's all of a sudden you look up and you're like, what, what is it? What does it mean? Oh my goodness. Yeah. That's a lot of pictures. Well, a lot of it was, what does it mean? You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to me, I, I, it's, I, I try and be real simple. I try and be very, you know, uh, manual, manual exposure. I love the autofocus, you know, love the quietness. Right. And you don't have to put a moto drive on and it's just very small. And, and you can, all of a sudden you become intimate in this, in a, in a sub with a subject. Yeah. It's, yeah. Or unobtrusive. Yeah. Right. I think it's more unobtrusive. You know, it, you there's. Know, there's a lot when you make that connection with what you're shooting and all of a sudden you're just sitting there going, this is why I'm supposed to be here. This, yes. this is it. And that being the reward in itself, not worrying about publishing or getting a book deal or right. a Getty deal or, you know, getting back to the core reason that, that inspired me to do what I do to begin with. Yeah. And then, How, and then doing it. <laughs> that's true. How did your, documentary finally turn out from 1982 um <laughs> it oh the oh that yeah, oh, the oh yes you remember <laughs> oh I thought, well anyway yeah yeah well it 
It's, it, went, it went great. You know, got uh, we did a little book that uh, I didn't like the reproduction on, which I don't think many <laughs> photographers do. Um, God. But it opened up lots of doors for me. And I'd show that's what I would show to Nike and say, this is how I see and think. And they go, oh, yeah, OK, this is what I think you should be doing. Um, and then I, I put it away. I put it, I this is really interesting. I put all that stuff away till now. And so 40 years later, I'm going through all my music negatives and all my corporate negatives and all my baseball negatives and all the stuff I shot. All the stuff I shot with the Cubs is with the Cubs. Okay. You know, we both can use it. Mm -hmm. but my deal was what it would say with the team. Um, so that that's there and they're scanning all that stuff and doing that. Um, but going back to my early stuff from like Oregon and stuff in the seventies and early eighties, I'm like, what were you thinking? I was curious to see what I was seeing and how poorly I was and how I was trying to figure out what I saw and how to capture it. Cause a lot of bad, not a lot of bad, a lot of poorly executed right. pictures, a lot of poorly executed proof sheets and underdeveloped negatives and, you know, and, and letting not, and tossing a lot of stuff, which is really hard to do. Yeah, uh, you know, fixer that didn't fix. Oh, do you, do you miss looking at a proof sheet? Uh, yeah, I get tired of I. You know, I live on photo mechanic on Lightroom. Um, it's yeah, I like picking up the proof sheet again, and it's really interesting to see how you saw in thirty six frames. Yeah, I, I twenty three frames. You know, oh. you take the roll up because you're done in. <laughs> You just have blank spots where they should have had extra frames. I can't thank you enough for this. This has been so much fun. This has oh, been a good. great. I'm glad we got to, finally got it together. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you're, you're happy in retirement and things are going well and you're, you got projects in front of you to do now for you. You know, that's always yeah. the best thing. Yeah, and I still love taking pictures, man. Yeah, I mean, is your camera with you every day? Uh, I usually the Fuji or the Leica. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, and that's so, you nice. know, sometimes I take I don't take it at the grocery store now, and I got I'm, I'm trying to figure out the straps that aren't so. There's all these new straps out there. They can they have these ones that can go across your body. They don't hang around your neck that I like. And, um, but it's all on my own nickel now, though. Well, that's right. Your investment guy will be calling you up asking you what the hell did you purchase? Yeah, seven dollars strap. All of a sudden, is like what? <laughs> Yeah, that doesn't go over so well. No, it doesn't. And my wife sees the books. <laughs> Stephen, I can't thank you enough. I, I I had a great time. All right, Matt. Well, I hope you uh, continue and that you hit this point soon in your life. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no. I, I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> You're absolutely the best. Thank you so much, sir. All right. Talk to you later. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Stephen Green. If you enjoyed this episode, please click the like button and become a subscriber to the podcast. Remember to follow the Just a Good Conversation podcast on Instagram, and you can find all of our past shows on the website at justagoodconversation.com. Thank you for listening.